Okay. Uh, hello. What's up? It's I'm so sorry. It's another Spotify episode. I know we've been talking about this a lot, and it's consuming the entire motto culture. But I had I have to do another one because I got one of my favorite musicians of all time to come talk to us. Steve Albini will be our guest on the show later uh, of Big Black and another band that I'm not going to mention the name of and Shellac and um, what else? Uh, he produced in utero the last nirvana album and doesn't take royalties on it because he's cool and has music industry ethics but anyway that'll be coming up a little bit later you should listen to the rest of the podcast why am i plugging the rest of the podcast you're already listening hello everyone i'm jake flores (laughs) anders lee is here washington commanders lee here (laughs) alex patak is here we're coming at you live with music talk yeah that's a very odd uh, bit to do, given the nature of the musician that we're talking to. He wasn't. Well, I guess it's kind of we're roasting him by doing like drive time radio at him. What's up? You are listening. Right, it's his weak point. Like, I've, <laughs> it's a skill I've learned from video games. I find the little circle where I do the most damage to your health points. Yeah. And I fucking spam that shit, and that's how I take home the title at the end of the goddamn day with all my great. Uh, uh, podcasts I do. It's the Morning Wacky Shack. We're here with Commanders Lee. Put You're here live with Shellac and Rape Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. And then there's like a cow sound. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Okay. What's up, everyone? Um, how are we all doing? Before we get into the the, the episode today, because I'm doing any... well. I I was clean living for a few weeks, and then I decided to go the other way with it and uh, go on the bender. So I'm in the middle of that, um, <laughs> and it's feeling pretty good. I feel like every time I, yeah. I texted you for the last couple of weeks, you were like, "I'm drunk on a snowboard right now." That's right. <laughs> That's <laughs> pretty Brooklyn? cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I was drunk on a snowboard. In Bro- that's how drunk I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just on the street hoping. I was like, why am I not going down? Well, it snowed. In so traffic. You, yeah, you could <laughs> skitch on the back of a cop car or something. I mean, that's what, apparently my mom has started. Uh, she got some old used skis and has just been cross-country skiing around St. Paul, which that's is what's up. a yeah. city, but covered in snow. So you can do that. Um, North girls doing- hit different. Is she drinking okay. too? No, she's she's sober. She now, doesn't. But she's not like that. I'm doing well. I just <laughs> won a Wikipedia flame war, an edit war, as it's called. They actually notify you. Oh, I saw you posting been... about this. Yeah, I finally basically won. Um, what page were you on again? I was on CIA involvement in contra cocaine trafficking, which oh. You were doing psychic ops. Yeah, I was trying to undo psychic ops, basically. Well, you were doing your own op on yeah. their ops. In a way, in a way. And for now, it's it's at a satisfactory level. It was getting changed back, changed back every like five minutes when I would when I would do it. And they send you a notification eventually. And they're like, hey. you're being annoying. Yeah. Or they there's like some mechanism where you can um, have a dispute resolved by someone else. It's like this whole bureaucracy. Uh, and in order to get taken seriously, you have to make an account. So I made a Wikipedia account 
I am named Mr. Objectivity too. So I don't know how you get, how you're going to tussle with that. Um, <laughs> but the, the page had said previously that the CIA had been cleared of all, uh, narcotics activity that, that there was no evidence of a conspiracy by the CEA or its employees to bring drugs to the United States, which is very precise, very particular misleading wording. And that part, I couldn't get taken down. However, I did get it amended a little bit because it said there were three investigations that concluded this uh, when really there were two investigations that concluded this and one done by the CEA, CIA that, conclu- that found that assets were running drugs and that the CIA knew about it. And can I ask what started this? <laughs> war you've been engaging in (laughs) i've been doing research on the contra cocaine connection for a while for a project i've been working on and um i so i naturally eventually checked out wikipedia and i found this to be horrendously misleading and it was um bothering me and then finally i struck up the nerve to edit it and learn how to actually fight for an edit on wikipedia and i finally got um in an addition to the end of the lead, which says that the report, the other report, one out of three, found that CIS had been trafficking narcotics and the agency was not only aware of this trafficking, but dissuaded the DEA from investigating the supply networks involved. So the, the real debate was over what is an asset? You know, because people say, oh, yeah, they're, they're, cocaine was going on. And the CIA knew about it, but that's not the same as the CIA doing it. Well, if their assets were doing it, according to John Deutsch, CIA right. director, an asset is the CIA. They're one and the same. So let me just read these Deutsch responses back to you. See what you say. It is cool that it was like you taking your time to correct this Wikipedia article and then like a staffed. Central Intelligence Agency operative, just like, no, that's not right. Yeah, Change it back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it, you know, the truth might even be sadder that it's someone who just has, who doesn't have any uh, relation to the CIA. It is just a pedant. Yeah, probably. I'm arguing with. There's like an anti, Antersley around <laughs> somewhere. Right. Just a fan. But waging a war of evil across Wikipedia. <laughs> But I couldn't even get the Deutsch uh, definition up because it comes from a town hall that I watched. And just the fact that I observed this in the video is considered original reporting and can't be on <laughs> Wikipedia. It's so technical and stupid. But moral of the story is eventually I won out. The moral of the story is Anders won out. Congratulations on your victory in a fight you had on Wikipedia. Thank you for your service. Very cool. Some of us like to fight on Twitter. Some of us like to really get into it with the CIA agent or maybe just some guy. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. You're I was going to talk about Jackass, but we can we can save that maybe. You can talk about Jackass. Did you see it? Was it good? I did see it. Um if you know someone who is 60 years old, and hurting themselves for laughs, 
Call the police. <laughs> They're all old. <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed to do this. They have like silver hair and shit. I've been, I've they can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> no, it's just, Chris Pontius, just do party boy. You're going to hurt yourself. Didn't uh, Knoxville break something? He got hit by a bowl so hard he gave himself brain damage. Cool. Oh, okay. Well, he's already had that for a while, I would imagine. Well, Kath was telling me about it. There's a uh, phenomenon in the wrestling world uh, where they refer to your bump card, which is how many hits to head you can take throughout <laughs> your career. And the one that really gets you at the end isn't always the worst one. It's just that you've run out of punches on your bump card, and so you're all out of punches, and so you die or forget things. Oh. <laughs> and that's where Johnny Knoxville, age 60, is at right now, is he, like... Gets rammed by one of God's hammers for your entertainment. <laughs> Oof, is he wearing red? I don't remember. It is probably the most fun I've had the movies in some time. I Five out of five stars, people. Go walk. I mean, run, do not walk. It's the nearest jackass motion picture film. Matadors don't wear red. They wave a red flag at the... Right, but I'm thinking because it's jackass, maybe they made it extra risky and just made him naked. And oh, he is the red flag. You should have written in with this idea, folks, uh, ladies. If he's got a big weird hat that's kind of in the shape of a horseshoe and mariachi pants, and he's hanging out in the middle of an arena, that's a red flag. That's right. (laughs) Bunch of red flag emojis. Call me a bull because I'm running right towards them when I see a red flag. Dating is crazy. Welcome to Stand Up Comedy Podcast, Pod Damn America. Ooh. <laughs> rape man, rape man. <laughs> <laughs> we should clarify what that means. You sure. It's gonna come up. Let's okay. just go to the let's just go to the interview. I don't think we actually gotta- even said it. I think we said off mic. If you're not aware. Steve Albini was in a band called Rape Man at one point, and it, they named it after a Japanese comic book. And he's talked. I almost didn't even hit him with it because I think like every interview, people are like, "So the thing." <laughs> I'm on but your Wikipedia here, he's and famously, and we'll get into this part of it. But famously, is like you know not someone who's like sticking by that. Like he's a he's a cool artist with authenticity and ethics who is able to go yeah i probably that was a mistake you know or uh he, yeah he's called it like a bad tattoo before i remember i don't even i honestly don't remember the name of the band but there's some metal band with some flagrant name i don't i forget what it's called but they uh whenever they're pressed on it they just post to a doug stanhope clip that uh, says it's just about why you shouldn't get offended by words. That sucks. Justice. (laughs) It's fucking lame. The clown is the one who can tell truth to the king. God damn, dude. Just own it if you're going to do something like that, man. You know? Yeah. Just be like, yeah, I did that shit. Oops. End of story. I mean, how hard is it to go like, oh, my bad. Yeah. (laughs) Or like... I won't do that again. Oh, uh, the band's already named that. And I made all these t-shirts. So how about you give me six months or something before I uh, change right. the name if, of my band? I don't know. 
If the Washington football team can... What if they were called the Washington? (laughs) 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 Oh, man. Ah! (laughs) All right. It's just be the next worst thing, which they did. Anyway, we'll have an entire episode about that name, but... We'll have many episodes about the name of the Washington football team for some reason. (laughs) Okay, everyone. Yeah. In the garage today, we got Steve Albini. Um, make some noise. Why am I talking like this? Make some noise. Make some noise. Start clapping. Clapping. Get those hands clapping. Give it up for your weight staff. Keep this uh, podcasting train moving. Honk honk. The podcasting train is here in the morning zoo. (laughs) Big Black. The other bad name. Um. Okay, let's do it. and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is now somehow we are speaking with um a music legend steve albini welcome to the show thank you for doing our weird little podcast thanks for having me um so while i have you uh i there's a couple of important things i wanted to get to basically regarding what's going on right now with this Spotify thing. But in order to get to that, I think that um, for anyone listening who maybe isn't uh, glued to their fucking Twitter or whatever, or maybe has muted the words Spotify, Neil Young, and Joe Rogan, uh, let's like recap real quick the events of the last week or so since Neil Young did this thing where he said, hey, I'm going to pull my music from Spotify if they don't pull Joe Rogan. Because, um, I mean, I, I even think I got lost a little bit because it, it got away from that and it became about, like, royalties and stuff like that, which is uh, much cooler. But um, but let's start here. So <laughs> if you can help me out, what happened after Neil Young pulled his music? So Neil Young pulled his music from Spotify in protest essentially and then that that protest started to get a groundswell of other people who had control of their music taking their music off of spotify um in protest of spotify um underwriting uh joe rogan and his podcast then other uh apolitical and non-political and um just sort of general musicians um started to use that moment as a springboard to talk about the exploitative nature of Spotify and the music business in general, but specifically the way Spotify um, is um, part owned by the major labels uh, with whom Spotify has an arrangement granting them blanket license to their catalogs. So these artists that are signed to these labels have no control over the the dissemination of their music. Like they cannot take their music off of Spotify the way Neil Young can, because they are not in legal control of the recordings and the masters. Their record labels are as a kind of a legacy arrangement from the pre-internet era when most of them signed their record deals. Um, 
the record labels were given uh, control of the masters for exploitation through any means known and unknown. And Spotify is a means that was at the time unknown. But because of that language, these artists have no way of uh, they have no leverage with respect to getting their music taken off of Spotify. And because of that very close arrange, um, arrangement between Spotify and the, and the record labels, Spotify pays a nominal amount of money to the artists, but a large amount of money to the record labels to secure this license. The nominal amount of money is down in the, you know, in like two or three percent of a penny. So, right. you know, in the ten, ten thousandths of a dollar per stream, depending on a complex algorithm, um, you know, the payment scheme of which is not public. So it's it's essentially impossible to be audited or vetted, except by these companies who are part owners of Spotify. Right. So um, if you are in a if you're an artist, if you're in a band and that band, your band's music is on Spotify, administered by one of these record labels, you get some measly amount of money from it or not. But there's no way for you to tell if you're being accounted to fairly or even what the terms of the accounting are. There's no way for you to tell what, you know, what the basis is on which you're being paid or not paid. And when I say paid or not, most of these record companies um, used contracts that allowed them to recoup from the royalties that would otherwise be paid to the artist, that allowed them to recoup whatever costs are incurred in the distribution of their music. So um, if there is a, you know, three one hundredths of a penny being uh, accrued into a royalty account for an artist, it's quite likely that there is a negative ledger balance somewhere that the record company can use to attach even that piddling amount of money and right. say, well, yeah, you're not getting that even that. We're, so it's, an, it's, a, it's a trust type of an arrangement where the record companies have agreed with Spotify that they will extract money from the audience for music and share it amongst themselves while ensuring that the artists whose music is being listened to get essentially nothing. Totally. Okay. So a uh, couple things. Uh, so there's been a, so there has been a sort of a groundswell of protest about that arrangement, right? which was triggered by the attention brought to Spotify by Neil Young because Neil Young objected to them underwriting Joe Rogan, right. who is a, a singularly destructive influence among the bros of America and the world, you know. Right. Um, yeah, so that paints uh, a, a pretty vivid picture, I think, of what kind of happened. Because what's interesting is that now everyone's talking about um, the problem with the music industry, right? And not this Vax thing, because that kind of just served as the jumping off point and the moment of, like, crisis, you know, that was able to be seized or whatever, which is totally fine. But before we even get into the whole um, minutia of the music industry, what do you think about Joe Rogan and, like, the idea of disinformation and, um, and you know, Neil Young's, like, sort of move here? I mean, he kind of laterally just moved to Amazon, which ultimately isn't really better than Spotify in a lot of ways. I mean, in, in terms of its treatment of the artists, it's not necessarily better because it also has blanket license arrangements with the record labels, yada, yada. Um, but it, they're not underwriting Joe Rogan. Right. You know, so the immediate complaint that Neil Young had is resolved, assuming that he 
Now, bear in mind, Neil Young is all is probably not operating under one of these onerous contracts with a legacy record label. Neil Young is probably writing his own ticket um, with respect to who gets to distribute his music and how. So it's quite likely that Neil Young's terms are dramatically more generous. And the reason that I say that is that my band is on an independent label that was not part of the buy-in, the major label buy-in to Spotify. And so even my piddly band, which garners a tiny fraction of the plays that these other people get, um, is treated more generously than they are. So it's given that Neil Young has been um, a sort of marquee artist for a very long time, has, has been able to negotiate terms for himself that are favorable pretty much all along the way since the 70s, it's quite likely that he is doing better than the artists, you know, the bands that are suffering under these um, streaming regimes, right? So on, uh, on that basis, if he was doing okay monetarily under Spotify and he's doing okay monetarily under Amazon, the fact that Amazon is not underwriting Joe Rogan is a huge plus. So it's a, it's a win for him. Totally. You know? Um, but I agree that the the mechanics of the music industry have always been structured in a way that allows the record labels who are offering contracts to ignorant musicians who have no defenses against this um, kind of manipulation, uh, that those record companies are setting the terms. And that at the moment, those terms are, you know, extraordinarily exploitative and bad for um, artists that are on Spotify. And so um, I think it was the dude from Eve 6 um, posted that he would rather have you stealing his music. Yeah. Now, I have I, I have my gripe with the term stealing of music when it comes to just listening to something. I, I think that there is uh, I, th I think that uh, listening to something is a fair use and all in, in, in my mind. So I, mm. I, I'm I, I do mildly object to that term, but whatever. He says he would rather you get it for free then go through Spotify, which is nominally meant to be paying him. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable position. You know, um, I think, you know, all, music fans of my generation, I'm, I'm very old. Uh, I'm 59 years old. So music fans of my generation are used to the notion of one guy in the peer group buying a record and then dubbing cassettes for his friends yeah, totally. so that everybody could have the common experience with the record, but only one person has to buy it. Right. We yeah. had burning. Our generation, yeah, and, yeah. you know, <laughs> later generations was uh, CD burning and then LimeWire and Napster and file sharing and uh, Pirate Bay or whatever, like all these places where you could get music from other fans without having to actually buy it yourself. And and I at the time and now I think that that was an enormously positive benefit and uh, for the music scene not great for the business of selling records, you know, like demonstrably bad for the business right. of selling records. But in terms of spreading the enthusiasm for music, creating a broader and wider and more worldwide audience for even the most like niche music, it's been an enormously positive development. And, and I think especially people like me who operate, whose music is on the fringes of music. Like I, I'm not in a popular band. The music I make is ugly and unpleasant. <laughs> it, you know, it speaks to uh, people who are not necessarily like tuned into the social flow of the mainstream. Like for people yeah. like me, the fact that some weirdo in Montevideo, Uruguay can 
download a song of ours and find something to appreciate in it and become part of the scene that we are in, right, without having to go through extraordinary means to do it, that's a great benefit to me. That's an incredible thing that I applaud, right? From a, from a music business standpoint, if I were running a record label, uh, I can understand the perspective that that guy just got a free listen and I'm angry about it. I can understand that perspective. I disagree with it fundamentally. Sure. And I, and I think anyone who would be that cheap about listening to a song on the internet is kind of an asshole on all on all fronts but i understand where that thinking comes from yeah what's well, it's funny you mention that because i was just reading about how in uh, the 80s there's a proto vhs technology and the studios at first were very very skeptical of it and they said well if you're going to do this if you're going to show a movie in your house, then not only do you have to pay like twice the rate of a ticket, you also have to pay us for every head that's in your house watching this movie. And then somewhere along the line, they realized it's profit more profitable to just give everybody VCRs. Yeah, I don't know if you I don't know what your memory of this era was like, but originally when films were available on Betamax or VHS, uh-huh. Um, they were sold at usurious prices. Like it was a hundred dollars to buy jaws or, you know, like $150 (laughs) to buy close encounters or whatever. And, and that was, that created the industry of the video rental store. Like that, the fact that they were charging so much per copy for buying these videos created an avenue for people to do the kind of sharing that we're discussing in music, but it created this, you know, video store, video rental store paradigm. My first job. Yeah. So the guy from Eve six, who's a friend of the show and whose name is the full sentence, the guy from Eve six is, <laughs> yeah. um, he said that back in the nineties too. This isn't like yeah. a recent thing where, you know, he just got, uh, you know, keyed up on leftist podcasts right. or whatever. It's this is around like- the same, around the same time that Lars Ulrich from Metallica was like shitting his pants about Napster. Yeah. All of the, the cooler heads around him uh, were saying, motherfucker you only have a career because metalheads were trading metallica cassettes back and forth you know yeah <laughs> like that like it it was see it seemed like such an insult to the very mentality the sort of fan enthusiastic fan mentality that had given him a life in music it just seemed like he was it's short-sighted because it's like these people clearly like you and they're going to come to the fucking show, but it's, you know, there's like this huge capitalist framework hanging over this whole thing that's putting people in the situations of the yeah. to be buying and selling. So I had a question about that because like I'm a big fan of yours, man, because I read Our Band Could Be Your Life and got into Big Black and I was like, this guy acts the way I think I act in comedy and stuff and there's a lot of like personal ethics like people are always like talking about how you don't take royalties and stuff off of albums which is insane because it's a thing no one should be doing if you're a recording engineer um but that that's sort of like um that's an embodiment of like personal ethics that we're talking about using like uh you know our political beings to navigate individually within the system my question is do you subscribe to any like larger political agenda that would maybe um you know fight exploitation on a mass level or is this uh, just kind of or my I, whole, is, go ahead. my whole life i have been looking for <clears throat> uh some political community that i could 100 percent identify with and it's been tough i mean there was a period there where there were some like just suit and tie Democrats, like 
normal, regular, straight ahead Democrats, like guys like Russ Feingold, who who were yeah. like I'm and Bill Bradley, like guys that I'm, I I mean, I resonate with those guys. They were as progressive in mind as, you know, canonical leftists were. They were working within the Democratic structure to shift the D- Democratic Party in a more progressive way. Bernie Sanders, clearly, you know, beloved by uh, everyone he's ever served at all levels of government. Like there are individual people who I, I can identify with and, and, and think these, these people are working within a system that repulses me, but to an effective degree, you know? Uh, and, and the way things like, um, DSA and the way like the, the grassroots funding that Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the, the way that they have created an alternative to the sort of patronage model of campaign finance, uh, I think is incredible. I mean, the fact that uh, AOC doesn't spend any time fundraising because she has subscription funding and because she, there's a sort of a community outreach that is legitimate and real that is funding her campaign like that means that she can she can attend every single committee hearing that she can be there for every single vote that she can be there to make the case for at every single debate like that is the kind of good governance that these sort of you know wholesale changes in the body politic have have enabled right i'm rooting for all of those to succeed i want all of that to work I find it hard to identify as a Democrat, like, I'm, I mean, I'm going to vote for the Democrats if the yeah. option is Democrat or Republican, but I find it hard to identify as a Democrat when I see the Democrats, you know, sandbagging Bernie, for example, or getting 100% behind uh, an absurd military appropriations bill with no questions asked, like things like that, they, they're galling to me as a progressive. And it makes me want to see those people out of office. But it also, I also recognize that there is a, there is a paradigm that we're operating within the two party system. And I'm going to be presented with some like hold your nose choices most of the time. Yeah. Well, like somebody's mic is fucking up. I don't know who that is, but, um, uh, you know, politics outside of the two party system, who the fuck? Okay. Somebody's cord was rattling. I don't know. Um, so, but, I guess like something that we're kind of into on, you know, our show here being socialists is politics maybe outside of even the two party system in terms of just like uh, not 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 necessarily talking third parties, but I mean, like labor power and stuff like that. Like, do you see like, you know, unionization or anything like that possibly working within the music industry to alleviate some of these problems? Or is it I mean, my brain kind of just goes, you need full revolution to really alleviate the fundamental problem within this, because art is not something that really should be a job, in my opinion, just be a thing we get to do. Good. I think we figured out whose microphone is shitting. Anders, your microphone is shitting. No. Thank, engineer here. Thank you, legendary. Putting us uh, on blast. Recording engineer. <laughs> okay. Um, so there are a couple of things at play there. The idea of unionization for um, a large workforce, I think, is critical to a large workforce being treated like human beings, right? It, uh, there is something more like a guild is appropriate for people like working musicians where. Uh, you know, for the sort of standard gigs that people get, there should be sort of standard pay. 
Like if you're showing up as a session, a session guitar player, just playing sheet music for Muzak or whatever, you should be getting the going rate for whatever that gig is, right? You shouldn't have to fight tooth and nail to get paid your worth for something like that, where there's a, you know, a jingle session or whatever, you know, like those, those should be sort of like reliable wages kind of jobs. The scenario where you have three guys in a garage writing songs as teenagers and they become a business entity of a band and that business entity then has to interact with the larger music community, that's extremely problematic to unionize in the conventional sense. Because within the band, there is going to be a power structure with, you know, and you you can't really say to a three piece band that they can't fire their drummer. You know, like what if their drummer turns out, you know, what if their drummer is a dick? You know, generally, it's not the drummer. I just want to point that out. Generally, if there's a problem (laughs) in a band, it's not the drummer. I mean, drummers are generally the cool ones. So, yeah. Aren't they robots sometimes, though, in Eh, your experience eh, here and there? (laughs) My my point being that uh, a that the labor model that works for people on an assembly line or for people working at Amazon or for people working at the post office, like the the labor model that describes that kind of labor and those working conditions does not work when you're working with small, self-contained, independently functioning entities like bands or a production company or a songwriter who then assembles ad hoc musicians to play with him. Like those aren't, those are not comparable. Um, And the fundamentally, I think there is an awful lot resting on the concept of intellectual property. And it's, that's a, that's a concept that I have had been at war with for most of my creative life. The idea that you can, parcel out the things in music that are important and pay individual people for those individual things uh, forever because they own the idea of it uh, seems insane to me when so much of it is received wisdom or traditional um, music forms or tropes that are, you know, received and varied. Like it, it just seems like an inappropriate application of the notion of property. Right. Yeah. And but but the music business has always tried to use that as its sole lever of compensation. You know, like we have the right to exploit these masters. So we're the only people who can make these records. So we whenever we sell these records, we get all the money. And oh, yeah, if we decide we want to end your career, we're just going to stop making your records and nobody else can make them then. Right. Well, good, good. Yeah, that I mean, I'm just saying, I think that the notion of intellectual property is suspect on its face. And I I think the idea that that should be the mechanism through which we you know, like create equality or equity within the music scene is flawed, fundamentally flawed, because it's so open to manipulation and just it's so easy to create these fraudulent scenarios where you have like uh, the guy that owns the record company is somehow the co-writer of every single song that this blues artist released right. over his life. You know, like, like those kinds of things, the, they're corruptions of a notion that on its face is kind of suspect. That's why to me, like the thing, the situation that Spotify is in seems like to be the logical conclusion to just the idea of having this idea of intellectual property and music being something that's commodified at all, which is why, it's like a big picture thing that's really difficult to talk about because how do you solve that? Well, I don't 
fucking want to say it on a podcast, you know, but um, uh, wait, this fucking remind me of another question about this. Oh, you've said I've read a couple times because, uh, you know, because like to catch anyone up on maybe like why this concept of an episode even came about. Steve Albini wrote famously in the 90s this thing called The uh, the Problem of Music. That, and then I, you had this Twitter thread today that kind of – or a few days ago or whatever, a week ago, that seemed kind of like an updated you know analysis of these interworkings of the way royalties and uh, you know and, and the money that you get up front that you don't get again, recoupment and all that stuff works that like lay people will have no fucking idea about. We just assume that it works right. fairly or whatever. That's So you are like one of the first people to actually write – an article with the first three words in the title, the problem with, which is like every other article today. <laughs> yeah. You did it in the nineties. That's very impressive. Yeah. He pioneered that. Um, as music's own yeah, I, whistleblower. I, 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 speaking to the point of intellectual property, uh, that article was written, that article, the problem with music was written for an art and culture ma- magazine, sort of a fanzine quasi magazine called the baffler. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. and, uh, in the frontispiece of the Baffler was the uh, explicit statement that everything in the Baffler was in the public domain and could be reprinted and reused with no remuneration or credit by anyone in the world ever, forever. Uh-huh. Right. The, that magazine, everything in that magazine was presented into the public domain. Right. What that meant was that that article that I wrote, the problem with music could be reprinted without my permission, uh-huh. without me needing to be asked for permission. It could be serialized. It could be used as the basis of another piece of work. It could be reprinted in whole, and it was reprinted whole in other publications without me having to be compensated or without me having to be consulted about it, right? Yeah. The entirety of that magazine's print run was print, was in the public domain. And there, the argument against doing things, releasing things into the public domain like that, is that well, then anybody could print it, and then you wouldn't be able you wouldn't be able to sell any copies of it. Yeah. And uh, I would point to the fact that that issue of the Baffler has continued to sell very well in reprints uh, for the lifetime of the publication, and it has been serialized into a book that was, or it has been collected into and anthologized into a book that itself sold very well. Uh, uh, I point to those as sort of practical examples of the nonsense of the notion that intellectual property is necessary to maintain the relevance and profitability of a piece of work. Yeah, totally. Um, the question I, I guess I'm kind of working towards, I'm really interested in this thing that you have read you say a couple times, which is that you think the streaming model will not sustain itself. Yeah. How's that work? What's going to happen? You think? So this is going to be slightly technical and kind of an, and slightly annoying, but, um, Go for at it. every stage of technological development, the music industry as distinct from the musicians uh, has created a paradigm which the music industry thought would preserve its sort of gatekeeper position. So in the beginning, there were court musicians who worked for the court, <clears throat> and they were not allowed to write down their music and disseminate it because they were expected to be just playing it for their the, their patrons. Like they're not, you're not supposed to play this music for anybody but us. So don't write it down anywhere. Don't let anybody else learn this music. So then music notation evolved and music notation became 
how people would spread pieces of music okay. in, beyond the group of people who originally came up with it. That music notation was then owned by publishers who would then say, oh, you want to hear this, this sonata? Well, you're going to have to buy the manuscript from it. You're going to have to buy the notation from us. Otherwise, you, you can't hear it and you can't play it. So then when um, broadcast of music exists, became possible through radio, um, the music industry, that is the orchestras and band leaders and stuff, were terrified that if people could hear music in their homes, this, and this is true also of the early phonograph recordings. Like when phonograph recordings first came into existence, the idea was that if you could hear Caruso in your home, you wouldn't go to the opera house to hear Caruso. You wouldn't spend the money to go to hear Caruso. But what happened was that these phonograph records and cylinders could be disseminated widely. They could be shipped all over. Yeah. And so people in Ottumwa, Iowa, or, you know, uh, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, could hear fantastic music that they would never have an opportunity to hear otherwise. Right. right? And it created an audience for that kind of music, which created the possibility of local symphony orchestras and created the possibility of the touring musician, a musician who could go from place to place where he would be welcomed or they would be welcomed because there was an audience that had been created for them. Radio did the same thing. The band leaders were terrified that people wouldn't come down to the ballroom uh, to see Xavier Cugat if they could hear Xavier Cugat on the radio or whatever. But what it did was it gave people a window into this excitement of a live music event and it created an enormous audience for live music. And so then those people started going to uh, live music events. And, it, and it, so what, what happened is at every turn, there was a technological development or there was a cultural development that allowed for the broader dissemination of music. And the music industry reacted defensively to it. When cassettes became available, cassette recording became available, the music industry reacted in shock and horror and tried to halt the sales of cassettes so that people couldn't copy records at home. But yeah. then, as we described, copying cassettes for each other created a viable music scene for niche music that wasn't going to get played on the radio or whatever. And the same with CD recording technology. Like my studio still has a CD recorder, which we use to create listening copies for people from their session so that they can, you know, take a copy of their session home with them to listen to. Right. Still to this day, there is an added tax on the blank CD media, which goes to the record companies as a bulk distributed payment, because that was the only way that they would accede to allowing CD recording to be legal in the United States was by creating this, this cost overlay so that when I buy a spindle of blank CDs to record my band's sessions, you know, they're recording their own music. Some small fraction of that money goes back to the greater music industry to be distri distributed amongst all of the big record labels. And these are these are all mechanisms that were put in place to to protect and maintain a sort of gatekeeper mentality or gatekeeper effect for the big controlling record labels, big controlling interests of music at the time, whether it was uh, symphony orchestras or um, 
music halls or uh, at, at the current in the current moment, it's record labels uh, or what or vestigial re- record labels, what used to be record labels, who are now part owners of Spotify, right? Yeah. So the technology exists, or it exists in a crude fashion. Anything that's on Spotify, anything that you could listen to on Spotify, is certainly available somewhere else uh, to be listened to for free. You know, it's maybe posted on somebody's blog, maybe on a Bandcamp page, mm-hmm. uh, maybe on you know some pirate channel as they call them. But for sure, anything you can find on Spotify, you can find elsewhere, right? Yeah. So it stands to reason that some technology will be developed that will just find the free version for you and play it for you rather than have you have to go through the effort of being a member, you know, of buying a, a access through one of these per play, you know, paper play kind of um, companies. Right. And it may be a groundswell. It may be like an open source kind of uh, political uh, effect that creates this, or it may be somebody trying to monetize it some way by like, okay, you know, you buy this app for a one-time fee and then you can listen to music for free for life or whatever. Like I, I, I think something like that is inevitable. And the moment that technology uh, exists and is relatively low friction, then nobody needs Spotify. You know, it's, it might actually be better to have a thing that's not hindered by whatever Spotify's contractual obligations are. Yeah, to me, like we interviewed some people that are trying to start a streaming co-op where the money just sort of goes back, you know, to the workers instead of some guy chopping it off all on top or whatever. And like, to some extent, the tech is all there. I kind of look at yeah. this and I'm just probably the reason I'm wrong about this, but I'm like, why don't we just do that? Right. Do they just have well, a monopoly on nor- like the hegemony of the name Spotify or something? Well, there's there's also like the there's a huge body of popular music, which is enormously popular with people who are um, let's let's call them low intensity music. fans. <laughs> yeah. Like people who just want to have some tunes on at work yeah. and they want all the tunes that come on to be familiar to them tunes. They've been hearing their whole life, you know, this whole legacy, this whole like, you know, thousand year history of music. They want it to be stuff that they know rather than they don't want to be like surprised by anything. So that's always going to be a market, the market for like, familiar and already popular music that's that's going to be a huge market and the better you know things like spotify obviously have tremendous penetration for something like that like if you just if you're if you're interested in dad rock and dad rock only you know spotify i'm sure is going to be like your best option in terms of listening quality you know if what you're interested in is like underground and small label stuff from the 60s experimental jazz like uh noise music uh, things Obscure like that where you have these, socialist podcasts maybe yeah if you have bad stand-up music, comedy then for sure there are going to be better options for you than spot i've never had a spotify membership i i was agnostic for a very long time about whether our music appeared on spotify or not i i did not care i assumed that it was like radio in that it would shit would get played on radio that I would never listen to. And I'm not using radio to find music. So it doesn't have any real interface with my personal life. And I can't imagine that my bands would get played enough that there would be any money generated from it. So I just don't even fucking worry about it. Right. Yeah. It has transpired that Spotify does have enough of my band's music on it. And there is enough of an audience on it that it does contribute something to my annual income. 
it's modest, you know. Um, I think I could, you know, I think I could probably get a month's rent out of it over the course of a year, something like that. Once it's all diced up among all the different band members and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it's money. It is legit. There is legitimately money there. So, uh, now I've, uh, now I'm kind of like our band, the band I'm in at, at the moment, the active band I'm in at the moment, Shellac of North America. We haven't had a conversation yet about pulling our music off of Spotify. Uh-huh. I'm sure we will eventually, but we haven't had cause to talk to each other in the last couple of days uh, when it's come to a head. So, but yeah. sooner or later, I'm sure we're going to have that conversation and we'll figure out what we want to do. Well, you wrote about how like, that's kind of a different move for someone in your position. Cause you do actually make a little bit of that money as opposed to it's yeah. intuitive for us as listeners to go, wait a minute, why do you make more money than like these huge famous bands? But it's because they're part of the fucking record label buy in. Exactly. It's, it's because if the more popular your band is, the more likely you are to be beholden to one of these big record companies who have you in an ironclad contract that you, you gives you no control over your music and, and remunerates you really, really, really poorly. Well, let me ask you a question about that. Like, say a young fucking musician or comic or somebody is listening to this and they're thinking about making their first album and, you know, the path has appeared before them and they're like, do I do indie shit or do I try to cash in by going the majors? Like, what is the move at this point? Do you think you just... I have no idea. Really? (laughs) I mean, I I do know that in in the physical media era, in the era of records and CDs and cassettes, a record label would have access to things that would potentially get you a larger audience. Like they could get your music played on the radio with payola. They could get your music in the chain stores and the malls of America. Right. They could, they could purchase promotion of your music that would get it played at the top of the hour on every top 40 radio state. Like there were things, material things that a record label could offer in terms of this search for stardom. Right. There was there were things that they could do like they oh we have a, a great in at MTV. We can get your video in at MTV for sure, you know, or like we ha- we have an in with these hit maker producers and they've done great work in the past and we can get them to agree to work on your record. Like there were things, material things that a record label could offer a band that yeah. a band that was ambitious towards stardom. Right. Now, that's not really true. Like you're seeing more and more that the relationship between a musician and their audience is a direct one. Like if you make music, you can post it up on your Bandcamp page or put some videos up on YouTube or, you know, whatever other convenient social platform you have. And if you resonate with an audience, you automatically have an audience. You automatically have access to a worldwide audience with very little friction, you know? Yeah. So there, there isn't the argument anymore that you need a record label to get access to an audience, right? What a record label can offer somebody now is something like, you know, upfront money. Like, you want to live well for the next couple of years while you're putting these records together? We can make it so you can live well for the next couple of years for sure. Now, that might be the only thing you ever see out of your entire music career is this upfront money that we're giving you now, yeah. but we can give it to you now. I mean, it's still a little tempting because oh. you might not see that fucking money anyway, you know? Exactly. Like if you're, if you're, I mean, I say this, I, this discussion comes up all the time and it's often framed as me, the smart indie underground guy scolding all of these dummies for signing these major label record deals, right? 
Yeah. That's not it at all. If if somebody had come to me when I was 17 years old and just started making music, I would have signed the first fucking thing that anybody wagged under my nose. Like for sure I would have. Yeah. You know, and then I would have been up shit creek for the next 20 years like all these other guys were. Right? Yeah. What happened was that I got involved in the punk scene. And within the punk scene in that community, I saw people making their own records and selling them themselves. I saw that it was possible to do it on a personal level as an individual thing. I saw bands managing their own existence, making their own t-shirts, booking their own shows, like doing all of their own business. Yeah. I saw that it was possible, right? Totally. And so that's how I carried on. And from that point on, whenever anybody came to me, which um, granted it didn't happen often, but whenever anybody came to me and said, Hey, let us do some of the professional stuff for you for a cut. Uh, and you can just concentrate on the art, the, the artistic side of it. Right. Yeah. I was able to do the, you know, quick, you know, napkin math and figure out that that guy would be making way, way, way more money than he's worth. So I'm just not, I'm not interested. Totally. You know? And that's a kind of a truism in the music scene. Like whenever somebody offers to do something for you for a percentage, then by default, he's being overpaid. Yeah. Interesting. I'm curious, uh, as we're kind of talking about the chronology here, because you were active before and after this happened, and I know it, the impact was more on radio, but I'm curious what sort of impact the Telecommunications Act had on the music industry and what you do specifically, if you really noticed the shift there in 96. So what happened was that the Telecommunication Acts shielded some people from having to be responsible for the content of what they were disseminating, right? So that um, Google wouldn't have to pay for somebody getting access to something they weren't supposed to get in, get access to. It also extended the copyright terms uh, for copyrighted materials. So it used to be things that like things would fall out of copyright after a period of time. Initially, it was something like 17 years or something like that. I can't remember. And then it would fall into the public domain or then it, then it got to the point where it could be renewed one or two times and it would eventually fall into the public domain. And now it can be re renewed essentially indefinitely. So for example, uh, things like Mickey Mouse right. um, are never going to come into the public domain. You are never not going to get shit for using Mickey Mouse uh, on the cover of your record or on your t-shirt or whatever. Like you are, even though it's completely baked into the culture and it is in the public domain in every way except the legal one, it, it has been prevented from falling into the public domain in the legal sense. Yeah. Right. And that was Clinton's big accomplishment because there's like the history is ending. Mickey Mouse is going to be free use unless we do something drastic. And Hollywood got on his case and they, they basically <laughs> made him do this. Yeah. So every at every point, these protective measures have been presented to the public as being a way for artists to get remuneration right. for their art. Like, That's totally we want to make sure that these pe creative people, these artists and writers, that they keep control of their stuff. And what it, what, the, what it really did was it allowed the corporations to whom these rights had been assigned to continue monopolistic exploitation of all of this material. That's a big the thing. They, they always use uh, small business owners as like an example of you have to protect this person, but it's ultimately in the interest of big business every single time because small exactly. business guys don't make any fucking money off of art, you know? And 
I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a sort of a, a figurative uh, or a sort of a generic example. Uh, but this is the sort of thing that happens all the time because copyrights have been extended so, so much. Let's say that I stumble across a cache of material from an unsigned artist or so, so, uh, some music that has that was on like was on a small record label, which um, has is now defunct. Um, but the the rights to that material survive, and whoever bought the assets of that record label owns the rights to that material. They don't know it. And it may be impossible for me to convince them that they are in that position. It may be impossible for me to find out who that person is. But until I do, and until I get uh, clearance from them, I cannot reissue that material, regardless of the perspective of the performer, the artist, the writer, the person whose music it is. That music must remain under lock and key unless and until formal license can be granted for it. Otherwise, you're subject to getting sued by some shareholder somewhere that discovers that, you know, you released a bootleg version of something. So there are entire swaths of our culture which are now lost. They're, they're going to be orphaned and lost because the chain of custody of the rights to the material survives, right? Yeah. Despite the fact that there's no active interest in exploiting the material at the moment, if it if anybody tries to make use of it, you can't, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just, good. I, I'm just saying that's one of the many knock-on effects of saying that these that intellectual property is an inviolable and now sort of endless obligation. Yeah, totally. Right? And it's funny um, now because, like, you know, when it comes to the U.S. government's view of like the global South, like hunger, poverty, you know, climate change effects from that. It's like they'll they'll deal with it. But dear Lord, there are street vendors in Bangladesh yeah, exactly. that are selling <laughs> the adventures of Pluto Nash. We need to freaking yeah. invade this place or set up this you know legal regime. It's the the, the sense of urgency uh, with that versus other problems is just just tells you all you need to know about the system. Yeah. Well, speaking of double standards, I, I'm going to steer the ship here a little bit in a different direction because I want to get to something that I really want to hear your opinion on because um, this is a comedy podcast and Joe Rogan is hilarious uh, in all the wrong ways and he said some fucking shit today that's pretty funny about um, being called out about using all these racial slurs on his podcast. Uh, and at the root of this, the seed of all this, uh, there was this <laughs> this ongoing stupid fucking argument that never ends online about free speech, and uh, there this this let me start here. Okay, so today like Rogan made this video where he's like, "Yeah, I really need to talk about this thing I said. I'm sorry, I took it down. Yada yada yada. It's pretty funny, right? He's a dumbass." Um, but you know, I think. He he said that he um, he was taken out of context, and that's usually what guys who get in trouble for saying a thing you know that pisses people off say, especially in comedy, is it's comedy can never fail, can only be failed. Like everything is my intention was always right, but you know if it didn't hit, it's just taken out of context. In the video, he said, but even in context, it was bad, fucking crazy, right? Um, but I was thinking about that, and I was like, I was thinking about how like. Uh, the, the point of view of, of people that get 
put in the spotlight for stuff like that and judged for stuff like that is always that you need to be as apologetic as possible to me as a comedian because my intention was fine and you know every yeah. possible interpretation of this is bad whereas I mean, that doesn't go both ways with those guys because yeah. then anyone criticizing them is also shouldn't be seen as a human who is intentions are good they should be seen as a fucking attacker and someone who's the word censorship is getting thrown around to an extent that is nerve-wracking for me a guy who was actually kind of almost censored by the government where you know all these people are just acting within the private market neil young isn't censoring anyone when he takes his music off of a thing he doesn't want to take it off of if he owns his music you know uh free speech is like the fucking through line of this dumbass part of the argument i mean well i guess right off the, uh, we'll start here how do you feel about all that well, I mean, as someone who has said insensitive and rude things and and callously used charged language, racist language, sexist language in creative projects, like I, I'm I'm 100% guilty of that. And I think that cop out of saying, oh, you're you're not you're not using the whole context. You don't you're not understanding it. That was actually noble and good. I think that's a, a total dodge. Like I I'm an adult who is willing to take responsibility for all the things that I've said over the years, all the things that I've done over the years, I think, you know, I, I just feel like it's a, it's a total cop out to on one hand present something as your art and say, I want you to take this seriously. This is my creative output. Yeah. Right. And then somewhere in there, there is stuff that, on reflection is hideous and was insensitive and was a mistake on, on my part or on Joe Rogan's part. Uh, then when somebody else notices that, and for sure he noticed it before some, Rogan knew that he said all that shit before anybody brought his mind to it, you know, yeah. brought, brought his attention to it. When someone else notices it to get defensive and say, Oh, Hey, 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 you got to look at the whole body of work here. That's just a, a little episode that you know you're taking it out of context uh and besides i'm just a guy telling jokes don't take me seriously like at the time he did it he wanted everybody to take it seriously i feel like at if it had said if he hadn't gotten trouble he would never have thought about it like this he'd have been like exactly the joke was great you know if and it killed as somebody who has said a bunch of stupid fucking shit that i now have to <laughs> own up to like i feel like that's like the first step of any kind of maturation is to say over time I have grown and learned and some of the choices that I made when I was younger with the wisdom that I have now were, were, were clearly mistakes, not just mistakes, but they were hurtful that, you know, yeah. in, in my, in my particular case, the culture that I was in the underground music scene, the underground culture that I was a part of, the transgressive element of the art was a pretty important signifier for all of us about what we were doing was we were breaking uh, societal norms, right? We thought, thought society was hidebound and parochial and puritanical. And we were going to, we were going to willy nilly just break some of those norms. Some of those norms of propriety developed because certain parts of society had been subject to horrendous abuse. Like, um, the feminist perspective developed because of the mistreatment mistreatment of women and the uh, minimization of women in culture. Um, the civil rights movement developed 
because of the horrific treatment of minorities by the mainstream, right? So those those things as uh, norms or as as modes of thought were not the same as like religious puritanism or um, racism on its face. Like they were not the same. But in our community, they were th- those things were all seen as boundaries, and our our rule of thumb was well. It looks like society is taking care of all of these problems, so we can step over any of these boundaries with no real consequence. Right, and that was a mistaken notion on my part and on the part of a lot of my peers. Yeah. Now, some of the people who worked in that space at the time have gone beyond the fringe and are now just like full-on fucking right-wing, um, you know, racist uh, pieces of shit. Like, the, like some of the people in that community. Like, turns out they were actually they they weren't speaking ironically or they weren't speaking for effect. They weren't using shock value for its own sake. They were they were voicing an ugly part of their psyche that was legitimate. Right. Yeah. And for for the longest time, I've had I I ex, I not, I'm not I'm not excusing that behavior, but I, I had as an explanation for that behavior that your mind wanders, you know, and the creative mind wanders more than most. And when your mind wanders into an area that's uncharitable or that's bigoted or that's ugly or that's um, uh, abusive, if you inhabit that mind for the moment, you're not necessarily becoming that as a person, right? Right. That's the explanation from a creative standpoint that uh, allowed me, that gave me license to use that kind of language and those kind of images and that kind of thinking, right? I now realize and recognize and accept that using language like that is still using language like that, whatever its intent. And you are adding to the volume of that kind of abusive language, that kind of... um, minimizing or subjugating language you are adding to the volume of it also whatever your intent the effect is the effect whether the intent was what this that or the other or whatever i wanted to ask about this because it's kind of central to like my whole fucking thing because like i in comedy there's a term for people that really stick on this sort of stuff called an edge lord like this guy's really into the edge or whatever and like i personally i get a lot of shit from people online for having been perceived as someone who like left that world but i am still an edge lord in the sense that i still understand in the right context like to use the fucking dumb term here in i still make a fucked up joke from time to time in a way where i don't think it's going to leave the room and then hurt somebody if it's because it like i do understand as the creative type the thing that you can do where you ironically take on a thing like that and it does cause you know a, a degree of stimulation that like you know, there's an argument even you can make that like some people really like that kind of shit because it gives them dominion over that sort of thing or whatever. And like, I've never really left that. I mean, what I learned and what I think a lot of people that like don't learn and refuse to learn and end up just going down the right wing rabbit hole is that like no one's even asking you to stop having these sort of creative (laughs) impulses. They're just asking you to control them. And the market plays into all this stuff because we're being, you know, we're, we're seeing ourselves as, as players in it and then going, well, anything that I do in this that doesn't sell is a fucking attack on me because I'm using it like to, you know, to, to feed my family or whatever the fuck you're lying. Yeah. I mean, and that's, 
that's just so patently untrue. Like the most popular, like the, the, like every other Netflix special is called something like triggered or I'm offensive or whatever, you know? And yeah, I mean, all, all of that is all of that plays into this mentality that like it, if you have these base instincts and you're suppressing them and you feel the active of suppressing of them is some kind of a burden on you that you're unburdening yourself briefly by being, outwardly racist or sexist or whatever like that somehow that's lip that's a liberating moment for you right uh and that other people who don't want you to experience that brief personal joy of being able to use the n-word or whatever like those people are somehow keeping you down right yeah and when those people don't give a shit about you what you are doing is sending up a flare trying to get their attention <laughs> you know yeah uh, i just find that the the notion that there is any kind of oppression from the outside or any kind of i mean no one's even no one was paying attention to old joe rogan podcasts <laughs> yeah. right? right like if he all the ones where he talks about like well maybe the grand canyon was carved by martians you know like nobody cares about that right yeah uh, like yeah i um i'm a bow hunter i um every t every time i down a deer i like to cut the liver out and eat it on the spot you know like whatever nobody cares about any of that right yeah it's he it it because the the transgressive moments for him were so exhilarating in in the moment that his his joy in being able to rub people's noses in that is is palpable and that's what people are reacting to. They're not reacting to the pure language. I think they're not he's... reacting to the, the existence of those sentences. Right. What they're reacting to is a guy who feels empowered and liberated by debasing other people. And I think he's being disingenuous about that because it's always presented as like, oh, well, you cannot judge this because it was within this you know context of like a fake playtime that exists when you're doing comedy where none of this actually matters. But clearly, like you're right, the, the Joe Rogan podcast isn't interesting. The reason people are frothing at the mouth and fucking fighting for it is because it's become a centerpiece for this culture war that's about like the argument about it. It's not even about the fucking content. And now I, I, I should say that I had before recent events, I had some friends who would defend Joe Rogan as being just an open minded guy who would have anybody on his podcast and let them say whatever they were going to say unfiltered and that that by itself had value. I have close yeah. friends who are not dummies who would postulate that as the value of something like the Joe Rogan podcast, right? my response to that was to listen to a few Joe Rogan podcasts, <laughs> um, which are just teeth grindingly unbearable, right? To, yeah. to a person of my, my metal, right? And then to scroll back a bit and look at some of the guests that he has invited on and look at this, just the arc of the story of who he wants to give an audience to and what those people want to say to an audience that Joe Rogan has massaged into existence for them. Yeah. Like look at all of the people he's had on, what their perspectives are, what they're trying to say, what, you know, what they're, what beer they're selling. Right. Yeah. And then ask yourself, why is that considered open-minded? Well, it's not, the, the, it's, a, it's got an orientation. He may, Joe Rogan may not be bright enough to have a philosophy about any of this. Right. Right. But 
but what he clearly has is an orientation and his orientation is toward these free thinking idw uh racist um Kind yeah, of. there's no such thing as objectivity because if you are a person who has biases and things that are going to sound nicer to you and people that are going to actually approach you if you are a guy with that much power and money. So if you even if you think I'm platforming every person I meet, it's like the question is, well, who are you meeting, you know, and which which of these ideas are taking off and are, you know, you're kind of helping a little bit because they benefit the point of view that you aren't even aware that you have because you are just a dude who fucking smokes weed all day and shit, you know, I mean, he's, he's I, the the conservative grift, I think, to me is it's it's all about passivity because like you can't be blamed if you're like I'm just doing what feels right and you know there's a, 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 a fake sort of idea of like objectivity there or whatever. But like to let's get back to him a little bit uh, because the 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 byproduct thing we're talking about there's a distinction to be made and they always obfuscate this. They always obfuscate criticism of what they're saying with like an attack on whether they should be allowed to say it um i you know he's i mean they already said it it's not even a debate right and what's going on with like his jokes is as if you criticize you know the fucking bad jokes he makes the defense is you're trying to stop me from being able to say these. No, no, no. The argument is just I'm talking about whether it's good or not. I don't really care that bad jokes exist in the world, but I am a fucking comedian. I get to talk about it. It's like my fucking thing, you know, um, with him. I mean, there's a byproduct of, you know, this thing that's old as time, which is promoting hateful ideas accidentally even. Um, but then there's also this new question of like this becoming a fucking health risk with the with the the covid thing. Um is there any precedent for there like being anything beyond a discussion about that? Cause like, I don't really think, you know, I think Spotify is bad for the, the original reasons, the money stuff. Uh, we could kick Joe Rogan off of Spotify. He's still going to be the most famous podcaster ever. And people are sure. still going to listen to this, but like what could, what can anyone do about the fact that this misinformation and hatred is coming off the side of this fucking thing as like a byproduct or something? Or did, hey, can anything be done or do we just fucking talk about it or just talking about it, fight it, which is like, eh, I don't know about that. Nobody listens to this fucking podcast, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not into reactive behavior. Like I'm not going, I don't, I don't think it's helpful to wait for something to enter the public consciousness and then try to counter it because then you're always on a, uh, you're, you know, then you're in an environment where you're reacting to an agenda that they set, you know, the people that yeah. are the, the people that have an agenda that is harmful and destructive, you're, you're operating on their playbook. And uh, I, I just think it's worth making the case that while there is a global fucking pandemic that's killing thousands of people every day, the first thing on our minds should not be how soon can we stop being careful? You know, <laughs> that's yeah. maybe, maybe wait until it's not fucking deadly outdoors before you say, hey, let's go outside sometime. You know, that's if you, if you're actively promoting uh, a notion of community and a notion of caring rather than reacting to people who are rejecting the notion of community and rejecting the idea of caring. Yeah. One thing that I uh, I'm not sure what to where I come down on this ultimately, but uh, something that's been raised. It's it's that obviously we're not talking about 
government censorship, right? That's not really on the table here. But corporations essentially do have a monopoly, right, on on mass media. So in a way, if they decide to take something off, that is uh, in a, on a material sense, a form of, of, of censorship. Um, and, you know, on this question of objectivity, because uh, you're right, there is no no objectivity, but doesn't is there a risk there in if if we say, you know, Joe Rogan is wrong on uh, COVID and therefore shouldn't be denied this this platform that that could lead to th- things that we're saying. You know, I'm, I've been in a, well, a Wikipedia. I, I, just, fl- I, I, I just want to point out that no sure. one is saying Joe Rogan should not be on Spotify. Literally, yeah. no one is saying that. What people are saying is, I don't want to be on Spotify if Joe Rogan is on it. Yeah. That's what they're saying. What they're saying is, you do what you want with your fucking platform. I don't have to be a part of it, or I can, I can, I can extricate myself from it um, if if I think it's an overall a destructive influence. That is absolutely not censorship. That is absolutely not. It is people. No, it's it free is, speech. In a capitalist sense, it's a fucking market decision. People are saying, I don't want to be associated with this. It's bad for my brand or some bullshit like uh, that. Like, like I totally, I, I reject the idea that individuals saying, I don't want to participate in this thing. I don't want to pay for Spotify. I don't want my music to be on Spotify. I'm not going to use Spotify for listening. I reject the notion that that is censorship, right? So, um, uh, let's like that's that out of the way. No one is saying there should be controls in place to prevent speech like this from right. getting out. No one is saying that. No one is, is advocating for that. What people are saying is that we will decide what we will associate ourselves and our creative output and our life's work with. And I, I can't see any argument against that. Yeah. I shouldn't have to put up with being on a stage with somebody who is, you know, a, a destructive influence. Right. I, I guess what and again, I don't have the answer to this, but I'm thinking of, you know, Palestine, for instance, if, if there's an artist who's doing things that are supportive of Palestine, using their Instagram, let's say, to, to support Palestine. Uh, how do we prevent, you know, them being purged from from social media or, or our you know, left-wing ideas from being, being purged to, from social media. I mean, maybe this is just a separate uh, question. Yeah, what you're saying is how can we make these big corporate overlords think like us? And I don't think that, that that's, I don't think that there is a mechanism for that. I think censorship generally only moves in a leftward direction anyway. Like, the there's a complete imaginary paper tiger. I don't here. know about that. I mean, there are fucking schools all over America where they're banning books. Like and there's there are laws being enacted all over America that allow sort of conservative review of school materials so that we can indoctrinate, make sure that children are being indoctrinated correctly into a notion of America that we approve of. Like, you know, there is right wing censorship like, you know, all over the map. There is like legitimate right wing uh, restraint on speech that is happening at a, on a governmental level and on an institutional level that is not happening with respect to the left. Well, I meant that the censorship happens to the left, not oh, okay, by the okay. left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because most things that are, you know, right wing, like even something I, I noticed a, like while I was thinking about this Rogan thing is that like he that 
the imaginary like 1984 thing that is happening to these fucking Facebook people's brains is that somehow there's an authoritarian like government that's coming in and stopping all this stuff and the government isn't at all all this stuff is being censored by the market but like with Rogan and the vaccines and stuff they're they're imagining that the vaccines are sold on an individual basis and that like by individually not taking them you're somehow fighting the thing which actually I was thinking about this other day I might be wrong about this tweet at me if I'm there's a minutia missing you work in medicine or whatever but isn't prolonging the fucking pandemic actually to the benefit of the people that sell the vaccines to the yes. government to yeah. then be sold in these batches because they go bad and then they throw them out and shit and like it's actually making them tons of money that probably wouldn't be in their interest if there was like something like a, a you know a patent free right. vaccine and, or something like that and this is our vaccine like our tax dollars made these vaccines right you know the Pfizer and Moderna's grifted money they skim money off the top by distributing them, but this is technology that was made by our tax dollars. Yeah, so I mean, it's just ironic because it's you know it's like a fucking Twilight Zone episode or whatever. The guy who thinks he's a patriot at the end of the day looks in the mirror and it's like I'm giving all my money to the government, you know. <laughs> uh, but I don't. I mean, maybe this, we're getting too far away from the fucking whatever's relative to having uh, our guest here or whatever because none of us are medicine people, but. Um, I guess I wanted to round out. I, I wanted to uh, maybe get some final thoughts before we get uh, we close out here because I don't I don't I unlike some people I don't like to make four hour long podcasts every <laughs> fucking day of my life. Uh, <laughs> I like to get short and sweet with it. So I mean, I guess my question is, where do we go from here? Um, music wise, in terms of the the movement that seems to be happening, the crisis that that we've been able to take advantage of, you know. Well, I think that. The, the first step is that is people should be aware of how their money is being spent. Like when they spend money on a Spotify subscription, to whom is that money going and why? And that from an educational standpoint, I think that the stuff that the music union, I can't remember the name of the union, but there's a formal union that um, is sort of promoting the uh, awareness of the, the relationship that Spotify has with the major labels. And the guy from Eve, Eve Six or whatever, mm, like the, like the the public perception of that is starting to shift. There's starting to become an awareness of it, and uh, and the guy from Eve, Eve Six, his his cat, his line. He had a tweet the other day where he says, "I don't think we're going to be able to make sweeping systemic changes in the music business, but I think we can give Spotify CEO and their shareholders a really bad month." <laughs> I think that's a, I think that's a perfectly reasonable attainable goal, you know, like make them shit their pants a little bit uh, at the notion that their listening audience is going to be aware of their business practices and is going to hold them to account even to a degree, even if it only affects like this quarter, right? Yeah. It still had it still had an effect. And if it boosts the the use of other alternative platforms either like sort of free sharing amongst peers or things like Bandcamp, like I, I'm reluctant to posit that any one of the uh, alternatives to Spotify is the good one, you know, just because they're all companies and companies are going to operate in their own best interest one way or another. Um, but Bandcamp, for example, for the length of the for the duration of the pandemic, Band, Bandcamp has been doing these things called Bandcamp Friday, where they surrender all of their fees, like all of their portion of a sale that occurs through Bandcamp they give 100% of that money to the bands themselves. 
there's kind of, it's sort of a fee amnesty day that happens every couple of months. And I don't know if that is like, you know, I don't know if that is going to be a permanent part of the platform or whatever, but that at a very minimum, that gives you an avenue where, you know, every couple of months you can buy a handful of records and know that 100% of the money you're spending is going to the artists. My final question for you is uh, how do we improve the audio quality of this podcast? Because it's really <laughs> fucking bad and we all suck at it. Well, um, for the moment, I'm talking through the little microphone in my laptop here, and I'm sure that can't be good. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. what you could do is you could require your guests and your hosts to have, um, you know, decent microphones at hand. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely not going to happen. So sorry if you listen to the show. Um, you'll continue. Well, no, I'm the most maddening example because I actually have a decent <laughs> microphone. I'm just terrible at uh, using it the right way. I know you stepped on it. And earlier. you had a bad cable earlier, which you, has been rectified. Thank you. Yeah. I just stopped jiggling it because I have ADD. <laughs> You're so jiggly, man. <laughs> I mean, Can I just a- ask one quick question Go. before we get out of here. Go. I'm super curious. Uh, your Twitter now. Do you and you were a you wrote for zines back in the day and they were called in some circles mean zines. You feel like they were a precursor to sort of people dunking on each other on on Twitter, except yeah, absolutely a month and a half. Hell yeah, <laughs> that's what I felt. Absolutely, about. there was a. I mean, the 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 king of shade in that era was Gerard Cosloy, who had a fanzine called Conflict, where he would uh, instigate beefs and maintain beefs for, <laughs> an, you know, for issue after issue after issue. And I, uh, and he, in, you know, later on, he became um, a label executive. He ran Homestead Records and then Matador Records. He was one of the partners that started Matador Records. And he's like, uh, but it, for a while on the down low, he kept every few years, he would put out another issue of Conflict and it would sort of, he would sort of try to you know, you know, pump the bellows and try to re-inflame some of these beeves that he had. The plural of beef is beeve. It's right? beeves, yeah. Try to reinflate some of these or reignite some of these beeves over the years. Uh, his the sh- his shade was absolutely absolutely fantastic. Um, I wrote for a fanzine called Forced Exposure that had Byron Coley, who's one of the funniest and most insightful music writers of that generation, uh, and Jimmy Johnson, both of whom not afraid to shit on people from a great height. Um, and uh, I, I found that kind of thing exhilarating when the the alternative to that was uh, uh, fanzines of, of a type like Maximum Rock and Roll, which was a sort of a hardcore punk fanzine that spent most of its energy boosting the scene and um, like uh, shining a, a, an affectionate light on uh, on things. And it, that sort of got wearying because like it, every review was a good review. Every band was mm. a significant and important band. Every perspective was a, a noble and heartfelt one. It, that The fatigue of that was relieved by reading a review where somebody was just unapologetically saying that this record was a piece of shit that shouldn't have been made and all copies should be burned, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable with both of those mindsets being part of the conversation. And um, the thing is that that was all internecine. That was all within the under music underground that, that was none of it was ever trying to make a broader commentary on the rest of the world, you know, Mm -hmm. Do you ever tweet at ministry? Not that I'm aware. Okay. <laughs> I have to, I should say, 
I've had a Twitter for a long time, but I kept it private for a very long time. Mm-hmm. The um, I opened it up as a public thing for like other people to see it. Um, the occasion was this fall, my band was meant to go on tour and it was a tour that had itself been postponed for a year for uh, the pandemic. And we were canceling our tour and I wanted to open my Twitter and explain to people who, rather than try to explain individually, I could just explain sort of generally why we were canceling the tour and what people should do with tickets and that we were hoping to see them again in another year's time, you know, and that we were being trying to be responsible about it and not be a, a reason for people to congregate when it was clearly not safe for people to congregate, yada, yada. And I'd never expected or wanted the degree of engagement that I've gotten <laughs> with the general public. Like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable talking about myself and my behavior unbidden, right? But what I did was I opened a, a I, I knocked a door ajar, and once it was ajar, a bunch of people had shit they wanted to hang on me, and I felt like that was an opportunity to engage with them you know, as legitimately, as opposed to just blowing them off and going back underground. Yeah. And the, the problem that I have now, my intention was to keep the Twitter open and public for the duration, what would have been the duration of that tour so that people could, you know, I could interact with people who had tickets. They wanted to reimburse or get refunded or whatever. At the end of that period, there there were a large number of followers because when you're when your Twitter is public, you can't control who follows you except by individually blocking people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so for me to make my Twitter go private again, I would need to like manage a sort of a subscription list of people and block individually block thousands of people, which would make me feel like an asshole for one. And also is would be a lot of fucking work. So I kind of feel like just leaving it be now is probably the easiest solution, <laughs> although it does put me in the position of getting, you know, an extraordinary number of angry DMs from Joe Rogan fans or, you know, having my mentions blow up every time there uh, somebody wants to remind the world that I was in a band called Rape Man. You know, <laughs> well, what's worse, Joe Rogan fans uh, now or uh, Rights of Spring fans back in the day? Uh, Rights of Spring fans like they would, you know, they'd get their feelings hurt and leave most of the time. Joe Rogan, fan, <laughs> Joe Rogan fans think that they are, you know, they have they absolutely think that they are the smartest people in the room when uh, they are demonstrably among the dumbest people in the room. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible spectacle. Well, um, I'm sorry to hear that, but it sounds like you're in hell like the rest of us, and there's no leaving, so welcome to Twitter. I can't blame anybody but me. (laughs) Yep, and none of us can ever leave, so um, (laughs) let's, uh, you know. So I have a question. You're an experienced Twitter person, right? Unfortunately, yes. I've had more than a few people ask me why I don't have a blue check on my head. And I'm curious, what does a blue check do? Why would I want one? So I don't, I genuinely don't understand what the concept of the blue check is. It's, I mean, it's really stupid. It's really just like a black mirror sort of star belly sneeches thing. But like it, it, when Twitter started, there was this thing where like, if you were a celebrity, 
the they would need to verify that you were that celebrity because people would make a bunch of accounts that were all like, hey, I'm Shaq, and I'm tweeting as Shaq, and then Shaq's <laughs> mad about that because he's like, I didn't fucking say that, you know? So right, right, right. there was well, this... That, for, on a very small scale, there are a bunch of fake, or it used to be at least, I haven't checked in a while, but there used to be a bunch of fake Steve Albini accounts just because I didn't have a public profile. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's like an inevitability because people are just assholes when it comes to the internet and so they'll, oh, I can fucking fuck with people like this, right? But like, that that's how it started, I think, functionally. But then what happened is... Um, it went. It's it's shifted over the years from a thing that like Twitter just you just wake up one day if you were famous and there was a blue check on your name and you oh they they figured out I am who I am or whatever. Then there were periods where you could apply for one, and Twitter is home to uh, certain types of people, you know. And it's I mean it's a it's only a certain amount of time old, so the people that got in on the ground floor, the people that are like popular on it, are often popular for no reason other than that they were some dickhead living in New York, you know, writing doing a writing quote-unquote career or whatever or blogging or whatever around the time that, that it sort of became a thing so there's people that are like they have absolutely no reason to have this like thing but they I, I mean honestly I applied for mine because I was uh, still a young person who thought that there was a way to you know climb the supposedly meritocratic system and career in comedy and writing and so I thought oh, you could apply, and I had written an op-ed in the New York Times, and uh, that's enough for them to give you one. And so, you know, I got mine, and uh, it doesn't – it's absurd because I'm just some guy. But now there are people who the verification process is just that. It's meaningless. I'm not a famous person, but I have one. But what it does is not only, I think, um, in the algorithm, but also just psychologically, it boosts your ability to be seen on Twitter because people will follow you back if you follow them and you have a blue check and stuff like that. People just tend- hey, everything. Everything you're saying about it sounds like it's a like it's bad. Yeah, it's a fucking torture device. <laughs> and like I've known people who have like like almost like a tattoo, like they had it removed, you know, because it was like destroying their life or whatever. I still won't because it does get me stuff. For some reason, Katy Perry follows me on Twitter because she liked a thing I, I said once that. it's insane she only follows like 300 people and she saw me making I think it was about making fun of Joe Rogan and she just followed and but like that stuff like that happens because the the blue check mark then creates this like um, implication of being somehow of a certain quality which is completely made up and bullshit but I mean you know, it's like a fucking Shirley Jackson story or something. Like, you just start to see all of the things that are happening within the people's minds projected onto the blue check mark. You could. All right. Well, get- I'm, I, I'm, I'm just glad. I thought, like, if there was, like, if they like sent you a windbreaker or something, <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't get one. Like it'll just make your life worse. Um, and people already know who you are. I mean, if you're in a young up and coming writer, I think there's maybe an argument for like, yeah, this might help you go from obscurity into this class of people that is a whole other fucking problem. But, um, you know, it, the only reason I would say maybe Steve Albini should get a blue check mark is to like if you're worried about the other imposter Steve Albini's. But it sounds like those people might actually take some of the heat off of you. And I, uh, yeah, I could care less. I mean, <laughs> Im- imagine a world so small that you think you could get some kind of cachet from dropping the name of a micro celebrity like me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I think it's. Uh, I think it's. I think you're doing it right. I think you should probably maintain a level of obscurity before Twitter comes for you like it comes for all of us. 
But I, what the fuck do I know? I don't know. I'm also someone no one knows. Um, all right. Well, yo, man, it was a fucking honor. Thanks for coming on our show. Um, Thanks for having me. Big fan. And um, yeah, I'll probably put this out tomorrow and might hit you up for a retweet. But other than that, have a good one, man. Do you, do you have I, anything to uh, plug? <laughs> I, I, I don't like plugging. I don't like promoting things. I think all advertising is should be criminal. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't like any kind of promotion of any kind. Fair Sorry. enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I was gonna. I was gonna plug uh, Resonate, which is the streaming, the uh, indie streaming service we mentioned. But maybe, maybe we'll give them an anti-plug. Well, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm reluctant to throw my shoulder into anything like promoting anything just because you know it's just as reasonable that whatever this one that you're promoting now is like they could be sold to somebody in a week and then behave completely differently, you know, true. So I, I'm, I, I don't have a, I don't have a, a significant dog in the fight because my bands are so unpopular that the amount of money generated doesn't matter to me. So, uh, it, yeah, I'm, I just like on a, on a visceral level, I dislike advertising and promotion. Like when I see an ad on the television, I want to shut the television off when uh, I think one of the nicest things about the internet is that there are these mechanisms that allow you to remove all the advertising, you know, all the ad block functions are amazing. Uh, and uh, if I could build one of those into my television, it would be great. But um, I have a, uh, whatever you call them, recorder that allows me to skip past the commercials when that's the second best thing. Wait, so you're I'm telling actually, me that you're not here to unroll the new uh, Steve Albini songs about fucking NFT and it's, it's, the, a, new, it's the a new line of plugins, the electrical audio <laughs> signature series of plugins for studio and podcast recording. Yeah. yeah, no, I actually so I invented a uh, plug blocker like an ad blocker, but it's for podcasts. I would plug it, but if you're using <laughs> it, you won't be able to hear the plug. So damn dude be on the lookout for that you just blew my mind all right everyone let's get the fuck out of here all right thanks for having me thank, thank you, you. Steve. good to meet you um all right well let's do our plugs since we believe in plugs <laughs> and uh get the fuck out of here anders you got anything at anders lee here on twitter public account um and do do check out resonate they are they are i i suppose it's possible that they will sell out, I find it unlikely. Uh, so for now, you should check out Resonate and uh, check out our Patreon, where we got some great series, which is the plural series, it's just series. Uh, we got a, another install installation coming up, installation installment coming up of the Gladio series with the Corner Spatty folks, and also we got a new one we just kicked off this week. It's it's series month, I guess. Uh, the old Smedley Butler, uh, Smelly Butt Stuff, as we call That's him. That's right. We uh, are doing a two-parter on that. We just released part one on the Patreon. Crazy, crazy life. Uh, if you don't know who he is, um, he was a a Marine who did a bunch of dirty work for the United States and then went left wing uh, in the in the 30s. So check that out on patreon.com slash America. Thank you for plugging our show. If you listen to our show, consider listening to more of our show. Listen to more of it. It's good. It's better the more you do. It ramps up. It has momentum. Yeah, it gives you, like, good brain damage to listen to nothing but our show. It's cool. 
You know how having like two beers is whatever, but having like eight beers is really fun. It's like that. Yeah. I once saw a t-shirt that said there is nothing more worthless in the universe than one beer. Yeah. I agree with that. Are you selling those t-shirts? Are you plugging your t-shirt company? (laughs) I guess so. Damn. We have new merch. It's that (laughs) beer thing Anders saw. (laughs) Yeah. We just like Spencer's gift shirts now that say one tequila, two tequila, three tequila floor and stuff like that. (laughs) Uh, If you can read this, the bitch fell off. God damn America. You know what I'm also going to plug? Just (laughs) to troll them, I'm going to plug Generation X, the entire generation. There you go. Oh no! They hate, hate plugs, <laughs> advertising of any kind. Just check them out. Do we should start a, a magazine called Plugbusters? That's like <laughs> we take down people that do plugs on the ends of podcasts. You know, from within inside yeah. the world of pluggers. I don't know. Inside the world of pluggers. Check it out. Patak, you got uh, anything? Food co-ops everywhere. Plugbusters. <laughs> um, aside from February, which is series month, uh, I would plug my own Twitter uh, at Patak Test Kitchen, your number one stop for exciting new flavors. Other than that, I also am not a sellout, and I don't really like plugs, so like I'm going <laughs> to no more plugs for me. Damn. I'm too us. busy keeping it real, unlike some other people on this podcast. Also, Whoa. I was here the whole time. Yeah. So. That's how real you keep it. You didn't even talk on the podcast. Sometimes Steve Albini comes on, and it's time for my white ass to listen. You just need <laughs> No, it contributed vibes. Yeah, <laughs> my camera was off, but I was nodding. <laughs> Just knowing Alex was there left a whole <laughs> dude. It improved the quality of the show so much. Um, yeah, no problem. <laughs> well, I'm gonna do plugs because I'm a fucking uh, libtard cuck. Uh, yeah. Let's go, Brandon, or whatever. Let's go, Brandon. Um, I like to plug Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I would. Let's plug Brandon. Um. I have a live show here in Brooklyn that you can come to if you're a New York listener at the gutter. It's happening on February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. So if you got fucking dumped and you want to feel better, come over to the gutter and listen to uh, me do stand up along with a bunch of my other friends. Alex Patak will be on that show. My show is called Meat Space. It's at the gutter. It's February 15th. Um, doing another show on Rush Ticks, an online comedy club on February 24th. Um, it's online comedy, so I'll use a green screen and I'll play the DeSorono on the Rocks commercial behind me, I promise. Um, what else? Why you mad's my other podcast at feral jokes on Twitter and every social media I'm verified. Um, unlike some people and, um, oh, and I'm going on tour with the guy from Eve six's band in April. And also we are the union, the ska band. Um, I think that's it. Like that's plugs. It's plugged. It's plugged. I hope you learned something today. (laughs) 